This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Advocating in Love. In the first half, Carolina Nunez shares her address, Loving Our Neighbors. Then in the second half, Gayla M. Sorensen speaks on To Me He Doth Not Stink, Advocacy and Love. In the 1970s, my father arrived on BYU campus to begin his studies here. He was not the average BYU student, especially during that time period. My father had come to BYU from Venezuela, a country that many students at BYU had never even heard of at the time. He spoke virtually no English, and he was Catholic. The way my father likes to tell the story, he boarded a plane to the U.S., excited to venture outside of his conservative Catholic upbringing and expecting the secular American college experience he had seen in Hollywood movies. Imagine his shock when he discovered that his parents, my abuela and abuelo, had arranged for him to attend BYU so that a group of people known to him only as the Mormons could keep an eye on him while he was far from home. My dad found himself in a strange place, surrounded by people who were very different from him. He found the sights and smells of his tropical Caribbean home, mango trees, macaws, coffee, and the ocean replaced by those of BYU. He was struck by the flower beds on campus, which changed with the seasons, the empty streets and closed storefronts every Sunday, and the snow. But the students and faculty of BYU welcomed him into the community with open arms. Professors invited my father to share his perspective and experiences in class. Roommates and friends took my father skiing and on road trips to see the United States. A professor invited my father to live with his family for several months while my father adjusted to life here. My father could have chosen to transfer to a different institution, but he returned to BYU every fall from Venezuela. He learned English here, and then he graduated with a bachelor's degree. It has been over 40 years since my father was a student, but he remembers his time here very fondly. In fact, while I was growing up in Venezuela, my father could spot Mormon missionaries from a mile away. Even though he was not LDS, he would look for them and talk to them, often asking if they were BYU students. I am grateful to the BYU community for being so welcoming to someone with life experiences so unlike the majorities, for being willing to listen to and learn from someone with a different culture, language, and religion, for making room in their individual lives for someone who might have seemed like an outsider. I, too, have been the beneficiary of others' efforts to reach out to people from different walks of life. My early childhood was spent in and around the city of Maracaibo in Venezuela. My mother, a U.S. citizen whom my father had met here at BYU, was a member of the LDS Church and took me to church with her on Sundays. During the week, though, I attended a Catholic school for girls. At the beginning of my first year at Colegio Altamira, one of the nuns at my school—I wish I remembered her name—tapped me on the shoulder and asked if she could talk to me. She led me to a hallway outside my classroom where we sat on a bench. I was sure I was in big trouble, but I wasn't. This sister told me she just wanted to know more about how I prayed. She knew I was not Catholic, and she had noticed that I did not recite the prayers that the rest of the class recited every morning. 
I told her about how my mother had taught me to pray. This nun and I discussed the differences and the similarities in our styles of prayer. I awkwardly apologized for not knowing the prayers that the other girls were reciting, and I vividly remember this sister telling me that she thought my way of praying was beautiful. That experience has stayed with me. A woman who had committed her whole life to serving God through the Catholic Church and who served as an authority figure in her church sat down with a little girl of another faith to have a genuine conversation about prayer, not to convert or change me, but to connect as sisters and daughters of the same God. I offer these stories today as examples of communities and individuals striving to follow Jesus' plea that we love our neighbor as ourselves. Unfortunately, I think our understanding of the term neighbor may be blemished by the modern urban and suburban reality of homogenous and socially segregated neighborhoods. I fear that when we hear the word neighbor, we imagine people who live near us, likely in houses or apartments that look a lot like our own and whom we chat with at the neighborhood park or in the stairway that connects our apartments. We envision people who lead lives similar to ours, who speak the same language we do, who have similar beliefs to ours, similar goals and similar challenges. We love them abstractly without really knowing them because we assume we understand them. They are, after all, a lot like us. But this is most certainly not what Jesus meant when he instructed us, love thy neighbor as thyself. When a lawyer asked the Savior to define the term neighbor, Jesus answered by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. As you will remember, a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho and was brutally robbed and left for dead. A priest and a Levite each passed by without offering help. A Samaritan, however, stopped to treat the man's wounds, took him to a safe place to stay the night, and left money with the innkeeper for the injured man's care. Jesus urged, Go and do likewise. The literature commenting on and analyzing this parable is rich with layers of cultural context and doctrinal insights, but today I want to focus on just three very basic pieces of the story that help me better love my neighbor. An element of the parable of the Good Samaritan that has been meaningful to me is the way in which the Samaritan served the injured man. He physically rescued him. We read in Luke that he bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The Samaritan then stayed the night in the inn before leaving money for the injured man's care and promising to repay any additional expenses required. The Samaritan made space in his life, both physical and mental, for the injured man and got close to him. This was not abstract compassion. It was concrete. This was not arm's-length love. This was an embrace. The Savior asks us to go and do likewise. Loving our neighbor requires getting close to our neighbor and giving of ourselves. In Spanish, the term for love of neighbor is amor al prójimo, or love of the one who is in proximity. The term prójimo connotes a physical closeness and personal touch that neighbor simply fails to capture for me. We follow the Good Samaritan's example not by abstractly loving from afar, but by truly connecting and spending time with each other, by genuinely giving of ourselves. This is not always easy. 
Getting close often involves sacrifice and discomfort. It can be awkward, time-consuming, and emotionally draining. Surely the Samaritan had other plans for his day. But he stopped to love someone who needed him. I have never regretted getting close to someone to more genuinely serve. I do, however, regret the times that I have failed to do so. Many years ago, I was practicing law at a firm in Salt Lake City. Every morning, I would drive to the light rail station near my house, park my car, and take the train into downtown Salt Lake. One morning, I was running very late. I parked my car just as a train pulled into the station, and I rushed toward it. Ordinarily, I had more time to evaluate the cars and select the car that appeared to have the most open seating. This time, though, I rushed onto the closest car. To my surprise and delight, I found the car completely empty. But as soon as I sat down, I understood why. An elderly man in worn and heavily soiled clothes sat slumped and crumpled on the floor at the opposite end of the car. His fingernails were long and jagged, his hair was dirty, and it was clear from the smell in the car that he had not bathed in some time. My heart ached for him. Some part of me wanted to help him, but I didn't know how. I worried about embarrassing him or embarrassing myself by trying to help. I worried about being late for work and about getting my clothes dirty. I wavered too long. A couple of stations down the track, a man, dressed as if he too had a job downtown, entered the car near where the old man sat. Instead of turning around and finding a different car as many others had done, he reached down, pulled the man up toward him, wrapped his arms around him, and gently helped him off the train. I don't know what happened after that. But the rescuer did not get back on the train. He likely didn't make it to work that morning. He probably got his clothes dirty. He got physically close and gave of himself. I wish I had had the courage to do that. But I'm also grateful for that lesson. I am working on better recognizing and seizing opportunities to love my neighbor, el prójimo. In the summer of 2016, I traveled for the first time to Dilly, Texas. You probably have never heard of Dilly. It is a small town with fewer than 4,000 residents about 90 miles away from the border with Mexico. Dilly is home to one of the largest immigration detention centers in the country, and it is reserved exclusively for women and children. The South Texas Family Residential Center, as it is called, can house over 2,000 women and children behind its tall barbed wire fences. Most of the women and children there have traveled to the United States, fleeing violence in Central America and hoping to apply for asylum here. Multinational gangs have been terrorizing communities in Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala for several years. In the months leading up to my trip to Dili, I read stories of sexual violence, murder, kidnapping, extortion, and torture in the newspapers. I had been thinking, quite abstractly, about doing something to help the detained women and children for over a year. But I was unsure of whether I was qualified to help, hesitant to travel so far from my home and family, and nervous about the emotional burden of listening to women tell stories of violence. In many ways, I was paralyzed like I had been on the train to Salt Lake. I am grateful to a colleague and friend at the law school, Professor Kiff Augustine Adams, who nudged me toward the opportunity to give of myself in a personal rather than abstract way. She arranged for us to spend a week in Dilly helping the women and children there begin the first steps 
toward claiming asylum in the United States. That week changed my life. In Dili, I met women who had endured unspeakable horrors in their home countries and who had left everything they knew to find safety for their families. Many of them had walked most of the way from Central America to the United States, often carrying infants. While we were there, my colleague and I met individually with women in detention center visitation rooms. We listened to their stories and helped them prepare to tell those stories to an asylum officer. I remember speaking to one woman whose husband had been killed by a gang. She struggled through her sobs to tell her story while her son slept in her arms. In that moment, I loved that woman, my sister, personally. Her proximity to me helped me better understand her humanity and mine. And suddenly, it was not just okay to be a thousand miles away from my comfortable home in Provo, spending a long and hot July day in an immigration detention center. It was exactly where I wanted to be. Later, my colleague and I began taking students to volunteer in Dili. Luisa Patoni Reese, a recent graduate of the law school who volunteered in Dili, described her experience of loving more concretely and personally. She says, I learned that loving requires sacrifice, inconvenience, and physical and emotional pain. I learned that I did not love my neighbors in Dili until I was actually there, no matter how much I thought and cared about them, from afar. A second component of the story of the Good Samaritan that is meaningful to me is the identity of the hero in the story, the Samaritan. Though Samaritans shared much of their ancestry with the Jewish people, they differed in their religious practices and regarded each other with suspicion and antagonism. The animosity was such that Jews traveled out of their way to go around Samaria on journeys that would have been much more direct by crossing through Samaria. Though Jesus doesn't identify the injured man in the parable, we know Jesus is telling this story in response to a question from a Pharisee, a Jewish lawyer. This lawyer would likely have imagined a Jewish man as the injured character, especially since the injured man was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. The setup of the story suggests that the Samaritan stopped to help someone very different from himself. In fact, the Samaritan rescued someone who might not have done the same if the tables were turned. The Savior asks us to go and do likewise. Our neighbors are not the people who are most like us. Rather, our neighbors are those who are different from us. They are the people that our own social circles have rejected. They are our brothers and sisters who worship differently than we do, who come from different backgrounds, who look different from us, who make different choices than we do, who have dreams and goals that differ from ours, who disagree with us, or even who have despised us. This, of course, is not to say that the people who are most like us aren't our neighbors, but our love for others cannot be conditioned on their similarities to us. We must love others, understanding that they are individuals separate and distinct from ourselves. The differences that separate us in this life make us each other's neighbors and, just as the Samaritan did, we must reach out to love and serve those who are different. This can be extremely difficult. Much of our life is devoted to surrounding ourselves with people who are like us. We become friends with people that share common interests. We attend church each week in part to join with a community of people who have similar beliefs to ours. 
We even curate our social media feeds to feature individuals who think like we do and block or unfollow people whose opinions bother or offend us. This is a natural human inclination. We want to feel that we belong, that we are respected and understood, that we are loved for who we are. But what might it be like to be an outsider, unwanted and uninvited? On my most recent trip to Dili, I met a woman who understood from her interactions with immigration officials on the border and from what she had seen on the news that she was an outsider. When I met with her to prepare for her interview with an asylum officer, she told me she knew that she was unwanted in this country. And she admitted, I don't want to be here either. She told me about the friends and family she left behind, including her mother, who was too old to travel, and her job as a school teacher. She had come to the U.S. to move in with an extended family member living here after she had escaped abduction and rape by a gang in Honduras. She spoke no English and knew very little about the U.S., but she had nowhere else to go. I was touched by the way in which the women at the detention center physically reached out to comfort and help each other, even when the only thing they had in common was their shared status as outsiders. Rest assured that you do not need to travel to the border to interact with people who are different from you. There are other kinds of borders that divide us in our neighborhoods, our cities, our wards, and here on campus. It is our responsibility to do what BYU students and faculty did for my father and what a nun at my school did for me. We must find our brothers and sisters who feel marginalized and out of place. They are not far. They sit next to us in class, stand behind us in line at the grocery store, and eat at our Thanksgiving table. Sometimes we fail to see our brothers and sisters who most need our outreach because we can't see past our own experiences. Our mistake may be to assume that everyone around us has reached the same conclusions and developed the same perspectives we have. We must be prepared to accept that others' experiences have been different from our own and that those experiences might lead to different conclusions, opinions, and ways of living. Otherwise, we risk further marginalizing and isolating the very neighbors the Savior has asked us to love. There is nothing lonelier than feeling like nobody really knows or understands you and fearing that if others truly did see you as you were, they might not accept you. I have been touched and inspired by countless examples of BYU students right here on campus crossing the subtle borders that separate us. They have opened their circles to include someone with a different story, a different background, another perspective. Over the years, I have watched my students babysit the children of a fellow student who was a single parent while she studied, befriend, love, and rally around a classmate who was gay, carry books and open doors for a fellow student with a disability, comfort an undocumented immigrant student whose status and future in the country was uncertain, and invite to their study group an older student who had returned to school after over a decade in another career, and another example of a person graciously sitting next to a student whose in-class comments had seemed harsh and even unwarranted. A small effort to connect with someone may mean the difference between despair and hope for that person. And we, in turn, may find our life enriched by that connection. 
And this brings me to a third lesson that I learned from the parable of the Good Samaritan. I think it is significant that Jesus chose a despised outsider, a Samaritan, as the benevolent savior rather than the victim in this story. It may be a Samaritan, an outsider we least expect to have compassion on us, who rescues us. We must reach out to those who are different, not only because they may need us, but because we need them. Are we humble enough to recognize that the Samaritans in our lives have something to offer us? Can we do as Jesus did when he chose to pass through Samaria on his way to Galilee rather than avoid a group of people that were not welcome at home? And will we acknowledge the woman at the well, a Samaritan, and accept a drink of water from her? A recent experience cemented this lesson for me a few weeks ago. My family and I visited Encircle, a resource center for LGBTQ youth and their families right here in Provo. The resource center is housed in a beautifully restored home that was originally built in 1891. Encircle provides programming and services, including counseling, social activities, service opportunities, and more for the LGBTQ community. I had been thinking, once again, very abstractly, about how I might be more helpful and supportive of our local LGBTQ community for some time. But I had been unsure of what I could do. My family parked our car outside of Encircle, and we walked in the side door of the blue and white building. I was ready to offer myself to Encircle. Maybe I could volunteer there, or perhaps I could donate funds for programming, or maybe I could offer some kind of pro bono legal help. I was proud of myself for finally making a real effort to act. What I hadn't really stopped to consider was that my brothers and sisters in the LGBTQ community might have something to offer me, that I might need them. As soon as my family walked in the door, we were welcomed, quite literally, with open arms. My children found other children to play with, and new friends offered us food and led us into their lives. I was struck by the sense of community and closeness I felt there and by how quickly this new circle of friends had opened up to us. I left in circle that day not as the rescuer I had imagined myself to be, but as the rescued. I also learned this same lesson when I traveled to Dili for the first time. In that summer of 2016, I boarded a plane to Texas with every intention of helping, even rescuing, the women and children detained there. But I did not expect to learn so much about the human spirit, about resiliency, and courage from my interactions with these women. I expected to find broken spirits and desperate souls. Instead, I often encountered grace and an unyielding faith that inspires me. The course of my life has changed because of my interactions with these women, and I am grateful to them for that. The students that have volunteered in Dili have learned similar lessons. Eli Pratt, the former student of mine, told me about a woman he met in Dili. This woman had endured sexual violence, gang violence, and abandonment at every juncture in her life. It wasn't until gang members threatened her young son that she left her country. Eli says, She was shattered in many ways. She had every reason to give up. But there she was, pressing forward, doing the best she could for herself and her child. She taught me that people have an extraordinary capacity to overcome challenges 
more than we would like to discover. Lauren Simpson, also another former student, had a similar experience. She describes the realization that the women of Dili could be examples to her. She says, Here were these women, often several years younger than I was, bringing up children with so much grit and grace in the midst of danger and violence. They had both a strength and a sorrow that I could not touch. It was humbling to witness, and it made me realize that their life experiences had given them a knowledge I did not possess. It made me feel like there were things they could teach me through their examples. I suppose I should not have been surprised by the way that connecting with those who are different has enriched my life and shaped it for the better. This is, after all, my origin story. I am a child of two different cultures, two languages, and two continents. I have always found good Samaritans on each side of every kind of border I've ever crossed. They have been neighbors to me not as a result of our paths coincidentally crossing, but as a result of their going out of their way to reach out to me. They have come close to me despite differences that separate us. They have given of themselves to help me, and they have allowed me to offer them a part of myself. This past year, my two younger sisters and I traveled to Venezuela to be with my father while he had surgery there. Fortunately, his surgery would go well. We found ourselves together on a plane crossing the Caribbean on the way to Venezuela, just as we had done countless times during our childhood. But this time, we were unsure of what we might find in Venezuela. I had not been there for 10 years. Venezuela is in the midst of an economic collapse that has resulted in the highest inflation rate in the world, shortages of food and medicine, and a mass migration out of the country. Venezuelans have settled in the United States, Colombia, Panama, Chile, Spain, and many other corners of the world. It was surreal to find the country of my childhood in a state of disrepair and decay and to think of the hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans who had no choice but to leave everything behind. I thought about my own friends and family members who are starting over somewhere new. I hope they have the same luck my father had when he came to BYU. I hope they find good Samaritans wherever they end up and that they, in turn, are good Samaritans in their new countries. I hope they encounter fellow travelers in this life who understand that we are here to love each other. Though it sometimes feels complicated in practice, the concept of loving our neighbor is very simple. My son instinctively understood this principle and taught it to me when he was only five years old. One evening, my husband and I buckled our two oldest children into their car seats to run some errands. We had just purchased a minivan. This purchase was the final frontier in our acquiescence to suburban parenthood. We had hoped that a minivan would put some distance between the two very loud children in the back and us, two exhausted parents, when we were in the car. And those of you with children will empathize with the desire for a little peace and quiet while driving. The kids were complaining about something nobody remembers now. In desperation, my husband turned toward the back and pleaded, Can we please just have some peace and quiet just for a moment? My then five-year-old son, Alex, looked at us, earnestly puzzled by what he perceived as a harsh request. His eyes teared up and he exclaimed, 
but Dad, we are here to love you. Alex was right. We are here to love you. We are here to love our brothers and sisters, friends and strangers alike. That is what the Good Samaritan did, and the Savior asks us to go and do likewise. I believe in Christ's message of love and in its power to transform lives. Love has transformed mine, and I sincerely pray that it transforms yours. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Advocating in Love. We've just heard from Carolina Nunez. After the break, we'll return with Gayla M. Sorensen for To Me He Doth Not Stink, Advocacy and Love. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Advocating in Love. Next is Gayla M. Sorensen, Dean of Admissions for the BYU Law School at the time of this address, titled, To Me He Doth Not Stink, Advocacy and Love. Since I first learned how, I have loved to talk. Marilyn and Denise, my two older sisters, used to set the kitchen timer for five minutes, challenging me to go that long without saying a word. I never once made it the whole five minutes. Talking in the kitchen to your siblings, however, is very different from talking in this concert hall to a large and diverse audience. Accordingly, I am both excited and humbled by this opportunity to speak to you. But I want this experience to be much more than just my talking to you. I want this experience to be one where the Spirit teaches and edifies, and I appreciate the music and the prayer that have helped set the tone for this to take place. In addition to loving to talk, and in part because I love to talk, I love being a lawyer. As a junior in high school, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer for two reasons. First, I wanted to be different by going into a challenging profession where not many women were employed. This was the mid-70s when less than 20% of the attorneys in America were women. Second, I wanted to be rich. I didn't have any clearly formed ideas of what I would do with the money I made, but in my small hometown of Brownfield, Texas, having a swimming pool in your backyard was a pretty big deal, and I think that was my primary aspiration at the time. As I found out more about being a lawyer, I learned of two outstanding attorneys, Rex Lee and Dallin Oaks. They were faithful members of the Church, and they had achieved very visible levels of professional excellence. They became my ideals. My choice of a major as a freshman at BYU was simplified when I discovered they had both been accounting majors, so accounting was my choice as well. I was in heaven when I discovered that two of then-President Dallin Oaks' sons were not only in my BYU ward, but they were assigned to my family home evening group. I had visions of dazzling them and finding myself a member of Dallin Oaks' inner circle. However, my Texas twang dashed these hopes. I accepted that I had failed to dazzle, 
and I'm still waiting for an entree to Elder Oaks' inner circle. (laughs) Nevertheless, I held on to my desire to emulate him by studying the law, and I absorbed the content, organization, and cadence of his talks. I was likewise thrilled my freshman year to be invited to a lunch hosted by none other than Rex Lee, who was then dean of the still-new J. Reuben Clark Law School. It was a privilege to meet him, and I still remember his infectious smile and how he made me feel important. He encouraged me to study law and helped me begin to see the powerful advantages a legal education had to offer, advantages that went beyond proving myself in a challenging profession and getting rich. One of these advantages became very compelling during my junior year of college. A well-known talk show host taped a show in Utah. He picked a controversial topic, one many people of faith would feel strongly about on moral grounds. When asked questions about why they objected to the position he took, however, many members of the audience were not able to clearly articulate their objections, even though very valid objections existed. As a result, I became even more committed to studying law, so I would be able to articulately and persuasively defend my positions on controversial topics. Following graduation from BYU, despite an accounting job offer that could have satisfied my original two goals, I began my studies at J. Reuben Clark Law School. For me, law school was a fun, exciting, meaningful experience from start to finish. I learned to think in new ways, and I met people who remain beloved friends to this day. I also discovered and refined my true passion—advocacy. For me, it was not enough to defend a position and be thought reasonable. My highs came when I persuaded someone to think about an issue or another person in a way they had not thought about before. It is on being an advocate I want to focus today. I want to encourage your advocacy in public settings, advocacy that is directed toward authority figures, legal systems, and institutions. But I also want to encourage your advocacy in less visible ways. This is a picture of my two older sisters, Marilyn and Denise—yes, the ones that would later set the kitchen timer—and me. If you look closely at the picture, you will notice that my collar is pulled up a little bit. This is because I was still a little wobbly when it came to sitting up by myself, so my sisters were holding on to the back of my dress to keep me from falling. I have been the beneficiary of behind-the-scenes advocacy my entire life and it has been provided by family, friends, and professional associates in ways too numerous to mention. Today it is evidenced by the fact that my husband, my 81-year-old mother, five of my six siblings—the missing sibling is with the U.S. State Department in Egypt and wishes he could be here—brothers and sisters-in-law, children and nieces and nephews have traveled approximately 15,000 miles to support me in person today. If you take nothing else away from my remarks, please think about those who advocate for your success in less visible ways and express your gratitude to them. Now, in what I hope is true Dallin Oaks fashion, I want to discuss three points about being an advocate. (laughs) First, recognize we are all called to be advocates. Second, determine some key elements of what being an effective advocate means. And third, contemplate for who and what we should advocate. I will then share some examples to illustrate these points. We are advocates because Jesus Christ, our perfect exemplar, is an advocate. 
In this dispensation, he described himself on at least five occasions as an advocate, and prophets in other dispensations have also testified of this key role he plays. He has given us the instruction, For that which ye have seen me do, even that shall ye do. So as we are striving to emulate our Savior, to do what he does, we should be advocates. He has placed people in your life who you are called to love and circumstances that you are called to support or change. Both will require your advocacy. While a law degree is not required to be an advocate, although it certainly does help develop that ability, I believe the major drop in the number of students enrolling in law school is evidence that our society places less value on advocacy than it has in the past. As I read articles, follow social media threads, and engage in conversations, I find those who disparage seem to far outnumber those who advocate. We need to change this imbalance by playing the role of advocate more and the role of critic less. Remember, Christ is our example, so civility must be paramount. There is no room for mocking, labeling, bullying, or belittling. Being an advocate takes more skill and work than being a critic. I have spent decades observing other advocates and trying to refine my own abilities as an advocate. Based on this, I would like to share a few key aspects of effective advocacy that I have come to value and that may help you increase the effectiveness of your own advocacy. These principles apply both in and out of the courtroom, and while they are often used in adversarial situations, they also apply when no direct conflict exists. Effective advocates present their case to the party who has authority to grant the relief sought. In lay terms, This means you should focus on persuading people who actually have the power to do what you ask. The Savior exemplifies this by being our advocate with the Father. The Savior's pleading on our behalf is directed toward the ultimate decision-maker. In the book Making Your Case by Antonin Scalia, a recently deceased justice on the United States Supreme Court, and Brian Garner, the authors observe, Nothing is accomplished by trying to persuade someone who lacks the authority to do what you're asking, whether it's a hotel clerk with no discretion to adjust your bill or a receptionist who cannot bind the company to the contract you propose. Persuasion directed to an inappropriate audience is ineffective. Too often I see energy expended on actions that are at best preaching to the choir and at worst throwing gasoline on a fire. Facebook posts read by an audience with no more power than the writer does to affect change are not effective advocacy. While rallying others to your cause is sometimes an important part of advocacy, do not be distracted by thinking this is your end goal. Whether working to help an individual do something she could not do for herself, promoting a cause, or changing an existing policy— Effective advocates direct their energies to those who have the authority to either finish the job or carry it to the next level. Effective advocates are knowledgeable. Passionate support can be part of the equation, but passion without knowledge carries little weight. As an in-house attorney at Motorola, I often participated in selecting what we referred to as outside counsel to represent the company in high-stakes matters. We were very focused on choosing attorneys who knew the law exceptionally well in the area of concern, whether intellectual property, environmental, or antitrust. 
In this way, we could be confident they had credibility with the decision-maker. In addition, they would have the power to plead our case in the best possible light, advise us about the areas where our position was weak, and help us strengthen our position. Outside the legal field, I likewise repeatedly see the value of in-depth knowledge. For example, our daughter Mandy graduated from college with an emphasis in special education long before she knew she would be the mother of two children with special needs. She has drawn on her formal education and supplemented that knowledge with informal learning in order to become a powerful advocate for her own children and for other children with special needs. I have marveled as I watch her advocate on their behalf for services and opportunities, and I have watched our grandchildren's potential blossom as a result. In persuading the person with power, substantive knowledge is important. However, I often observe situations where the point was not carried by the most intelligent attorney in the room, but by the attorney who had gained the trust of those who needed to be persuaded. This characteristic was highlighted by Scalia and Garner, who noted the human proclivity to be more receptive to an argument from a person who is both trusted and liked. Moreover, while a general reputation as trustworthy is valuable, to be an effective advocate you must specifically earn the trust of those you are seeking to persuade. Trust must be earned, and it is not easily given. In too many cases, I see individuals spend their energy insulting and criticizing from afar those who disagree with them, rather than working to earn their trust. How can you do this? One way to earn the trust of those you are seeking to persuade is to get to know them. In a 2010 editorial in the New York Times, Senator Evan Bayh reflected on the changes that had occurred in Washington, D.C. since the time when his father served as a senator from Indiana. He recounted, When I was a boy, members of Congress from both parties, along with their families, would routinely visit our home for dinner or the holidays. This type of social interaction hardly ever happens today, and we are the poorer for it. It is much harder to demonize someone when you know his family or have visited his home. Or, as the beloved but fictional attorney Atticus Finch put it, you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view, until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. Dialogue is enhanced and understanding is increased when underlying relationships are strengthened. Another key way to earn trust is to be respectful. Rexley exemplified effective advocacy, and he analogized effective advocacy to having a conversation about an important topic with a friend, not just any friend, but one that is respected and looked up to. Showing respect is of critical importance when dealing with those having the ultimate authority to grant your request, but it can be of equal importance in dealing with those who have different points of view. A final key way to gain trust is to acknowledge the strengths of the opposing point of view. Good advocates do not try to defend the indefensible. When the other side has valid arguments, Garner and Scalia advise, boldly proclaim your acceptance of them, thereby demonstrating your fairness, your generosity, and your confidence in the strength of your case, and burnishing your image as an eminently reasonable advocate. Effective advocates can still ably represent their clients' strengths while conceding that the other point of view is not entirely devoid of merit, and their credibility is significantly enhanced as a result. 
I hope I have persuaded you to be an advocate and that you are realizing you have the ability to become a powerful advocate, especially if you come to law school. However, you may well be wondering for whom and what you should advocate. As much as it pains me to confess, I cannot answer this question for you. However, I can share two guiding principles. First, never forget you are advocating for individual children of God. It is easy to become so caught up in the larger cause that we forget the individuals for whom we are advocating. Lanny Guineer is a well-known civil rights attorney who went on to become the first tenured professor at Harvard Law School who was a woman of color. In her memoirs, she observed with regret that as the civil rights movement unfolded, she and her fellow advocates became so caught up in developing legal doctrine and establishing legal precedent they distanced themselves from the very people on whose behalf they brought the cases in the first place. Constant reminders are necessary to avoid this pitfall. Dallin Oaks has represented and led large institutions, and he keeps this picture, the forgotten man, in his office as a constant reminder of the importance of the individual. The fundamental reminder, of course, is the example of our Savior. His advocacy is provided on an individual basis. For example, the Savior tells the Prophet Joseph and a small group of elders to lift up your hearts and be glad, for I am in your midst and I am your advocate with the Father. He tells Oliver Cowdery, Peter Whitmer Jr., and Zebra Peterson that he is their advocate with the Father. He is not an advocate in some abstract theoretical sense, but on a very personal, individualized basis. Second, be willing to accept the clients God sends your way, no matter how imperfect they may be. This I am sure about. They will come, inconveniently, surprisingly, interruptingly, but they will come. As the Savior stated in His great intercessory prayer, I pray for them which Thou hast given me. Let me illustrate how this has worked in my life. At one point in my career, I did volunteer work in the juvenile courts serving as a court-appointed attorney, which means I represented anyone the court gave me to represent. Sometimes I found my clients easy to advocate for right from the start. Other times, not so much. I had committed to accept those court appointments, however, and in every case I found it easier to advocate for my clients after I had truly gotten to know them and their stories. In like manner, God has given me a family composed of unique individuals. He has given me visiting teachees and young women. He has given me hundreds of applicants to BYU Law. Some of these clients have been easy to advocate for right from the start. Others, not so much. However, there has never been a case where I did not find it easier to advocate for these individuals after I had truly gotten to know them and their stories. God does not give us perfect clients. But thankfully, our Savior does not advocate for us because we are perfect, but rather because He knoweth the weakness of man. As you seek to answer the specifics of who for yourself, start with those people God places in your life. God will also prepare you for what you should advocate. As Ava Weitzman recently pointed out in her devotional remarks, God knows you, and even though you may not yet know His plans, He knows the end from the beginning. He is preparing and qualifying you for the work He wants you to do. You may end up advocating on behalf of disabled children, or displaced families, 
our individuals whose civil rights have been violated, our elderly grandparents who need care. But when God sends a client your way, He will have provided you with the opportunity to prepare to advocate for what your client truly needs. And when we are unsure what to advocate for, we can again take instruction from the example of Jesus Christ. As our Advocate, He pleads with the Father that we will be kept from evil, develop unity, and that we will know we are loved. We will never go wrong when we advocate for these results. To illustrate these principles, I would like to share two examples of advocacy from the scriptures. In the book of Numbers, we find the account of the five daughters of Zelophehad. Their father died, and they had no brothers. Under the existing inheritance laws, they would not receive any of their father's land because they were women. They did not sit around and complain to each other, nor did they simply whine about this injustice to their neighbors. Instead, they pled their case before Moses, someone in authority who had the power to grant their request. They were knowledgeable about the applicable laws, pointing out to Moses that their father had not violated any of the laws that would have required a forfeiture of the land, and noting that the effect of the current law would result in their father's name being done away from among his family. Acknowledging the concerns of others about preserving tribal lands, they agreed to marry within their own tribe. Moses was persuaded by their effective advocacy, and the result was a change in the inheritance laws benefiting not only themselves but future generations of Jewish women who might otherwise have seen their families' lands go to more distant relatives. In the Book of Mormon, the missionary Ammon had become part of the household of King Lamoni and his unfortunately nameless wife, simply referred to as the Queen who is the star advocate of this story. Upon being taught the wonders of the Savior's Atonement by Ammon, Lamoni falls to the earth as if he were dead. He continues in this state for two days and two nights, and a great deal of lamenting takes place. After this length of time, certain members of King Lamoni's constituency decide it is time to take his body and lay it in a sepulcher. Fortunately, the Queen recognizes it is time to advocate for her husband. She realizes Ammon has the power to help her husband, and she calls for him. She shows Ammon respect by acknowledging that he is a prophet and can do mighty works. She gains credibility by acknowledging the opposing point of view, but she also skillfully makes the best of her client's position when she states, Others say that he is dead and that he stinketh, and that he ought to be placed in the sepulcher. But as for myself— to me, he doth not stink. Her advocacy is effective. Ammon responds to her request to examine Lamoni and promises that on the next day he will rise again. She did not have a perfect client. To some people, he literally stunk. But she was his advocate, and Lamoni was not buried alive. In closing, I want to share a poignant example of advocacy from my own life. I did not get married until I was 46 years old. I had reached the age where I thought that if I ever did get married, it would be a marriage of convenience—someone I was comfortable with, nothing more, nothing less. Some close friends, Lois Jean Spencer, who is here today, and Marcy Linio, introduced me to one of their other close friends, who was a widower, Farrell Sorensen, who is a kind, faithful, wonderful man. 
They advocated for him with me and for me with him, and they were very effective advocates. We fell in love with each other, an all-encompassing love, nothing convenient about it. We got married, and as I continue to say, life became much better, but it did not become easier. Commuting coast to coast, I was working outside Philadelphia, he was working outside San Francisco, merging two households, realizing I was no longer the only one whose opinion mattered with respect to setting the thermostat, <laughs> figuring out my roles as wife, mother, and grandmother, etc., etc., was fun but demanding. His youngest son, Travis, was still living at home, but he was planning to move out a couple of months after we got married, so I set my expectations accordingly. I was fond of Travis, but going from living alone to living with a husband was enough of an adjustment, and I didn't really have the desire or energy to adjust to living with a 21-year-old male at the same time. Travis left in June as anticipated, and I wished him well, while feeling a little more like the home in California was now my home. Then in late August, Farrell let me know that because of some unfortunate circumstances, Travis was moving back in with us. I was not happy about this at all. So I called my parents, expecting their complete sympathy. I explained the situation to them and how inconvenient it was going to be for me, how unfair this was when I was trying to adjust to married life, and how this would impinge on my precious time with Farrell. Clearly, this was all about me. The response I got from my parents was not sympathetic consolation. They became zealous advocates for Travis. They knew I had the power to make Travis's return positive or negative, so they advocated for the positive approach. They had gained my trust through years of interactions, so I was favorably inclined to hear what they had to say. They conceded there was some merit to my position—not much, but some acknowledging this might not be the most convenient situation for me, but they focused on helping me see Travis in a different light. They pointed out how difficult this must be for him, how he probably wasn't any more excited about moving back in than I was, and how he was having to adjust to having a stepmother while still intensely missing his own mom. They helped me see how important it was that Travis feel loved. Because of their advocacy, I generally welcomed Travis back into our home. I'm sure I didn't always love him perfectly, but I was much more loving than I would have been without my parents' advocacy on his behalf. His living with us for the next year and a half became a great blessing in my life, and the love we share now is priceless to me. God will guide us as we develop our advocacy skills and He will provide us with opportunities to be advocates for His children. He will place some of us in situations to advocate to the highest legal authority in the land for changes that will benefit His children for generations. He will place others of us in situations where we can persuasively declare on behalf of one of our brothers or sisters, to me he doth not stink. And I can virtually guarantee He will enable each of us to advocate for one another within our families. Whatever specific realm we may be advocating in, if we promote unity and invite others to love one another, we can be sure we are advocating in a way that is pleasing to Him. I testify of these principles in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, our Advocate with the Father. Amen. 
You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Advocating in Love, with thoughts from Carolina Nunez and Gayla M. Sorensen. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.